0: Well, when we think about God and our relationship to God, it's usually helpful to take some time to go back to the beginning. And when I say back to the beginning, I mean back to Genesis, because the word Genesis means beginning. So if we go back to the beginning of the beginning, Genesis 1-1, it tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that Genesis 1 goes on to tell us that God created over a period of six days. And on the sixth day, God created the crown, so to speak, of his creation. He created man. He created humans. He created us. And the Bible teaches us in Genesis 127 that God created man in his own image, with intellect, emotion, and will. And because God created man in his own image, the very fact that we exist means that we have incredible worth and dignity and value to him. And then he took man and he placed man in a garden, a beautiful garden. And he gave man everything there was to eat in that garden with just one prohibition. He said, from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that, because the day that you eat of that, you're going to die. And less than 10 verses later, we see Eve, the very first woman in that garden, being tempted tempted to eat from that tree, the fruit of the tree that Adam and Eve were forbidden not to eat from. And we know that the serpent came. The serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? And Eve replied, well, yeah. God said we could eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when we eat from that tree, we'll die. And Satan said, die? You're not going to die. No, God knows that when you eat from that tree, you're going to be like him. And so Eve looked at that tree, She looked at the fruit. The text says she saw that the fruit was good. It was good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes and it had the ability to make her wise. So she took it and she ate. And then she gave it to her husband, Adam, who was there with her also, and he ate too. And both Adam and Eve Did not stand firm in the face of temptation. They went with their desires rather than the decrees of God. And the world has never been the same since. Every single thing was turned upside down because of their disobedience. Because of their failure to stand firm in the face of temptation. And you know, we like Adam and Eve, we face temptation too. We face temptation regularly, and like Adam and Eve, we're faced with a choice. When we're faced with temptation, what will we do? Will we go with our desires, or will we stand firm? Will we make choices that are good and lead to righteousness, or will we make choices that lead to sin and to death? And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. If you haven't already opened your Bibles, go to James 1, verses 13 through 15. We're just going to look at these three verses this morning, James 1, 13 through 15, and we're going to see how James instructs us, how God instructs us through the writing of James to stand firm when facing temptation. So let's read the passage together and then think about it. Uh, James 1.13 begins, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings fourth death. Okay, well, we need to look at James and his argument that he's given before this text to really get a grasp of what's going on here. Uh, We know that beginning in the second verse of James, uh, in fact, in James 1, 2 through 4, James told us, hey, rejoice, count it all joy when you face trials. When you face trials, when your faith is tested, count it all joy, rejoice when you enter into a trial, because that trial has the ability to help you to stand firm, to be steadfast, and then to be mature. And then in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 1, James says, but when you're going through that trial... When you're standing firm, when you're working on becoming mature in your faith, you're going to need God's wisdom. So ask him for wisdom. How does he want you to respond to those trials? What is it that he wants you to do? And when you ask for wisdom, make sure that you're willing to put it into practice. And then in verses 9 through 11, he talks about some specific trials that the people in his audience, his unique audience, were going through. Uh, A lot of them were suffering financial depravity. A lot of them were struggling without enough money to buy food. And he said, If you're poor, you can still rejoice because you are rich in Christ. And he said, And if you happen to be wealthy and a believer as well, you can rejoice because even though you're wealthy, God showed you your need for Jesus. You saw that you were nothing, you're bankrupt without Christ, and you are able to put your trust in him. And then he goes in verse 112. Let's read James 1:12. After this, he says, blessed, happy. Happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The one who remains steadfast, that's that word we hear often, mene. a hupo, a prefix meaning under, and the verb meno means to remain, the one who has remained under, the one who has stood fast, he will receive the crown which is life. And this is like, yay, this is fantastic. We can rejoice. We've got these trials. They make us steadfast. They make us mature. God gives us the wisdom to get through these trials right. Even if we're suffering extreme financial depravity, we can rejoice. Uh, If we stand firm, we receive the crown, which is life. Yay. But what about the one who doesn't stand firm? What about the one who doesn't remain steadfast? What about the one who gives in under pressure? And that's what James addresses in the passage that we're looking at. So if we look back at the 13th verse of the first chapter, James says, Let no one say when tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, that Greek verb that's translated as tempted here, is perazo, perazo. And it's interesting because it's the same Greek word that's translated as trial in verse two of James chapter one and in verse 12 of James chapter one. It's the same Greek root word. Uh, Perazo, the verb form, and perosmos uh, is the noun form. So what is going on here? Well, we know that God tests people. We see that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, for example, uh, a classic text is the test that we see in Genesis 22.1. Uh, it's also referred to in Hebrews 11.17, uh, the test where God tested Abraham to see if his faith was really in God and in the promises of God, and he asked him to offer his son, his only son, Isaac. Uh, in Hebrews 11.7, the word translated test is perosmos, or, which is the same word that's used here, Peirazo, the verb. Uh, John 6.6, 6. John 6.6, 6, Jesus tested his disciples. He tested Philip Uh, when they didn't have enough food to feed the 5,000. Jesus asked, where are we going to get bread to Philip? And it says to test him using the same Greek word that's translated as tempted here in our text. So there are multiple passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament where we see that God tests his people. And again, We've seen this through verses two through 12 of James chapter one. And yet, yet James says here in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, perazo, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So now James says, God tempts no one. So what was James doing? Did he write verses 1 through 12 and then put it away for a month and then pick it up again and start it up and forget that that's the word that he used? No. Uh, He used this word that has multiple meanings for a reason to teach us something critical. And that is to teach us that, you know, the issue isn't really the trial or the test or even the temptation. The issue is, How do we respond to it? That's what makes all the difference. How do we respond to it? The problem emerges when we fail to stand fast to the trial, to the test, or to the temptation. These trials can make us better, as we saw, steadfast and mature, or trials can make us bitter as we'll see in the text. They can make us better or they can make us bitter. And it all depends on how we respond to them. And we see that response embedded in the context of James 1.13, where he says there in the middle of the verse, if you look at it, for God cannot be tempted, and he puts in a clause, with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil. This is a temptation to sin a temptation to do things against the will of God. God tempts no one to do evil. So the first point for us is that when we're tempted to sin, we've got to reject the urge to blame. We have to reject that desire that's within us or that inclination that we have to point the fingers and to blame That is what James is clearly teaching us. Now, scholars note that in James' original audience, uh, again, they were incurring extreme financial hardship and all sorts of hardship, remember being scattered from their homeland. Uh, Scholars note that some in the audience were saying that the trial, the temptation that they were experiencing, their failure to stand up in the face of temptation was God's fault. Uh, God had given them a temptation, a trial that they could not bear under, and it was his fault that they had failed. Well, you may think, that's weird. I would never blame God for my sin. Well, don't be so quick to say that. Uh, Remember Adam and Eve? Remember when God said to Adam, basically, what have you done? What did Adam say? Who did Adam blame? He blamed God. Remember, he said, the woman you gave me. God, this is your fault. You're the one that created her. And if it wasn't for you, this would not have happened. And we can subtly blame God for things, too. When we fail to stand firm in the face of temptation, we might say, well, yeah, I cuss and I use profanity, but everybody in my family does. That's just the way that I was raised. Or that's just the culture that I'm surrounded by. I guess it's God's fault. Or, you know, I know I go out and I get drunk But all my friends, they get drunk. And when I was in college, everyone got drunk. And that's the people that God has just put in my life. And it's God's fault. Or yeah, I every now and then take something that doesn't belong to me. Or I don't give as I should. But God knows I've got these extreme financial difficulties. And he understands when I just have to take something that's not really mine. I mean, it's his fault. Or, you know, God made me Irish. God made me Italian. And he knows that we lose our temper. That's just the way that it goes. It's God's fault, right? Or, you know, God is sovereign. I guess he'll just have to take my sin and work it out for good. Or, you know, what about this? This is the most manipulative one, but trust me, you will hear this. Maybe God just didn't choose me, right? Maybe God just didn't choose me. What? Maybe God just didn't choose you. Maybe God did. Why don't you repent and believe and then we'll find out? Oh, I don't want to do that. So it's God's fault? Uh, it's incredible the way that we will manipulate and twist things to put the focus on God rather than us. And James says there in the passage that God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Two reasons why blaming God is absurd God himself can't be tempted by evil, God has no desire. To do evil, it's not within him. In fact, not only does he not desire it, he doesn't even have the ability to do evil. God cannot do evil. So it's absurd to say that he would tempt someone to evil when he can't even participate in evil. And it says he tempts no one to do evil. God desires that no one sin. He does not desire that we sin. He tests us to strengthen our faith. He does not test us to destroy our faith. When he tests us, he wants to strengthen us and not to destroy us. There is absolutely nothing within the nature of God that in any way would take pleasure in our spiritual failure. He does not want us to succumb to evil. Well, you might be thinking, in considering these things, you're saying that the text says that God cannot be tempted with evil. Well, what about Jesus? Wasn't Jesus tempted? Wasn't Jesus tempted by evil? That's a great question. And, you know, Jesus was tempted. Uh, It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Uh, And the following verses, I think up to 11, that uh, Jesus was tempted. In fact, Matthew 4, 1 begins by saying, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus was led by God's Holy Spirit to be tested, to be tried to prove that he was the righteous one, that he was the holy son of God. And yet at the same time, we have the devil there tempting him, trying to get him to yield to sin and to align with the powers of evil. We know that Jesus was tempted like us, but he never yielded to sin because God cannot be tempted by evil god cannot yield to sin he does not have the ability to and in thinking through that you might think well then jesus doesn't really know what it's like uh, to be tempted or to suffer because he doesn't have the ability did not have the ability to yield to it and you know that might seem to be true at the surface level but it's actually the opposite Jesus understands temptation, he understands what it feels like to be tempted far more than you or I ever will, because we're tempted, and ultimately we give in. Uh, Temptation grows and grows and grows, and we fail. We give into temptation, but Jesus being tempted, he was tempted in every single way. He was tempted in every single way, by every sin, in a way that we could never begin to comprehend or understand, and yet he never failed. He bore a weight that we could never bear. He understands what it feels like to be tempted. He understands the suffering that comes from temptation. He endured it all. And so when we fail, We can subtly blame God, and we can also blame other people too, which is just as wrong. Uh, We can't blame God, and we can't blame other people. It is not your husband's fault that you lost your temper. It's not because he pushed your buttons, or it's not because he knew what would trigger you, and you're not responsible for it. When you sin, it's your own fault. It's not your husband's fault. It's not your kid's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not your parents' fault because they did such a bad job raising you or because they you know, uh, allowed you to be exposed to certain things or didn't allow you to be exposed to certain things. It's not your parents' fault that you give in to temptation. You can't blame them. Their sin is their own sin, but your sin is not their fault. And it's not the fault of your circumstances. Remember uh, with Adam and Eve, uh, Adam said, the woman you gave me, the woman. It's her fault. It's her fault, God. It's your fault, God. And then Eve said, the serpent. It's its fault. It's his fault. It's whatever it is, his fault, Uh, right? It's always someone else's fault. We have this tendency to blame. And it's so neat that the scripture records this stuff for us. It records these things to show us that even from the very beginning, the inclination of the human heart is to blame others for our sin. It's to blame, because when we blame, you know what it does? It lessens the feelings of our own guilt. We don't feel the power that we should feel of our guilt in violating the commands of a holy God when we blame It's my husband's fault. It's my parents' fault. God, it's your fault. It's the fault of my circumstances. We do this in an attempt to diminish our own sense of guilt, but James teaches us it's not going to work. God's not going to have it. And we see that in the 14th verse, if we look at the next verse. The next verse says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person, that's every single one of us, including James, each person, we're all tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. So our second point is take full responsibility for your actions. You need to take full responsibility for what you do for your actions. In the 14th verse there, when he says uh, desire, that Greek word desire is epithumia. Uh, it can be translated as passion or as lust. We see it in 1 Peter 2, 11, where Peter is uh, admonishing his audience and he says, I urge you. Peter says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Same Greek word here, the the epithumia of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. These are sinful desires. Uh, These are passions that cause us to want to sin. And God speaks through James to show us that the responsibility for sin lies upon us and us alone. Each person is tempted, James says, When he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, That lured and enticed, these are fishing words. Uh, James, Jesus, the disciples, they lived in a fishing environment. They lived around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Most of the disciples were fishermen. Surely Jesus had fished, and James had fished, and so he used these words with these fishing connotations, and this lured and enticed, you see the fishermen taking the reel and throwing the the line out with the hook at the end, and the hook either has the live bait or it's got the lure or whatever it is, but whatever it is, that lure, that bait, it entices the fish that's in the water. So the fish is there chilling in his safety behind his rock or whatever, and suddenly there it is. There's the bait, there's the lure, and it looks good, right? Good for food, delight for the eyes, the desire to make one wise. It's sparkling and shining, and the fish is enticed out, and then he takes the bait, and he's lured away. And that's what James is saying happens to us when we are enticed and lured by our own desires. I was reading Smithsonian Magazine, And in 2016, there were researchers off the coast of Australia who caught what they say was the world's oldest fish. It was a midnight snapper, and when they looked at its bones and were able to determine its age, they realized that that fish was 81 years old. Now, I'm thinking, that's so sad. 81 years that fish managed to avoid being caught, right? And then something, you know, something came out and enticed that poor fish. He took the bait, and that was it. He was caught, and he ended up on a, under a scalpel as a result. But, you know, that's what James is saying here. Our own desires work that way. They entice us, and then we take the bait, we're hooked, and we're lured away. Throughout the letter, we're going to see that James is going to force us. He's going to say, I want you to take an honest look at your own desires, at the things that have the potential to entice you and lure you away from obedience to Christ. And we're going to see a lot of things that James brings up as we go through this book. Uh, He's going to go shortly to anger, and then he's going to go to gossip, and then a failure to help others, a love of the world, showing favoritism, a failure to love people, misuse of our words, jealousy, selfishness, Envy, pride, slander, boasting, greed, discontentment, and impatience. We're going to be faced with all of these things that have the potential to entice us and lure us away from obedience to Christ. And it's like James is saying, listen, if you guys want to live with authentic faith, and you should, it's good that you do. If you want to live with authentic faith, Before we start the program, before we really get into the nuts and bolts of this, we got to begin with two things. We got to reject the urge to blame and take full responsibility for our sin ourselves. Because if we're not willing to do that, we're never really going to be able to make the changes that God is looking for in us. I heard about a Uh, governor, a state governor that was visiting the prisons in his state. And he would visit the prisons and interview the inmates. And he would hear continually from the inmates about uh, how it wasn't really their fault that they were there. Uh, Inmates would say things like, I had to steal because I had no money, Uh, and, you know, it was the system, the culture around me that didn't provide for me financially, and it drove me to theft or to stealing. Or, you know, an inmate said, I lost my temper, I became explosive and went into rage because of my wife, Uh, you know, she was nagging, she was terrible, she was unfaithful, she drove me to it. Or, you know, one that would say, I was lied about. I didn't do anything. This isn't my fault. I've been framed. I've been set up. And it goes on and on and on. And the governor said that he met one inmate who said, I'm fully responsible for my crime. I have nothing and I have no one to blame. And when I'm released, I'm going to make every effort to change my life and to make my life something useful, something for good. Well, shortly after, the governor went back and he issued a pardon. He issued a pardon to the man who said that he was fully responsible for his crime, that it was his fault. And he put a note at the bottom of the pardon and he said, this is the reason I'm doing this. At the bottom of the pardon, he said, Honestly, I'm afraid that if I leave this man in prison, he's going to be a bad influence on all the innocent men there. (laughs) Well, we have got to take responsibility for our own sin. We've got to do that. We've got to get to the point where we stop. We stop blaming and we take responsibility for ourselves. Now, temptation is just part of the human experience. And our Christian maturity is not measured by how often we're tempted, but it's measured by how often we yield to temptation or how often we stand firm in the face of temptation. That's really the gauge of our spiritual maturity. We know that Eve, Eve was enticed and she was lured away by her own desire. She saw that fruit, she saw that food and it looked good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and she thought it would make her wise and she went with what she desired rather than what God decreed. And you know, shortly after, her own son, her own son did the same thing. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the same thing being repeated. In Genesis 4, verses 4 through 7, uh, talking about uh, Eve's kids, Cain and Abel. Uh, it says in Genesis 4, 4, that Yahweh, the Lord, had regard for Abel and his offering. So Cain's brother, God said, yes, I receive your offering. It comes from a right heart. Yes, I receive this. But verse 5 of Genesis 4 says, for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God said, no, I'm not going to receive your offering. And it says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. You know that feeling when you hear something and you can be doing fine and you get that news and suddenly your countenance falls? And uh, you think no one can see it, but everybody can see it. His face fell. He was not accepted by God. And Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Yahweh graciously warning Cain, Cain, if you do the right thing, I'll accept your offering too, but be warned. Sin is crouching there like an animal waiting to devour you but you must rule over it. You must stand firm. You must stand firm to my decrees and not go with your desires. And we know that Cain failed. Like his parents, Cain failed and he murdered his brother. And James goes on to warn us what will happen if we fail, what it looks like spiritually when we fail to stand firm in the face of temptation. Look at James 1.15. He shows us again what will happen. He says, then desire, then desire, uh, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James moves from desire enticing us and luring us now to another metaphor. Uh, This is like desire being a seductress or desire being a prostitute. And he says, when we give in to desire, it's like a man giving in to a prostitute. And when the two come together, the man and the desire, what is birthed is sin. What is conceived and birthed is sin. And then sin, when it fully is grown, it gives birth to death. What a tragic picture. Giving birth not to life but giving birth to death. So we see the parent and the child and the grandparent here. We see the parent is the desire. When the desire comes in, the seductress, the allure of the temptation that we're experiencing. And it begins in our minds. It appeals to our hearts and our minds. We think we want that. And when we embrace it, when we take hold of it, the union leads to sin when we yield to that temptation. And sin, as it's allowed to fully grow, the final result is that grandchild, which is death. We don't want that. I know you guys don't want that. We have got to stand firm in the face of temptation. So our third point is turn from temptation to God. We've got to turn from temptation to God. We've got to say, I don't want this. I'm going to turn from this to God. Now, Eve should have done that. Eve could have done that. Uh, Eve could have said, you know, I see, I see that uh, this is good for food, a delight to the eyes, and you're telling me it has the ability to make me wise, but God said no, and so I'm going to say no. I'm going to stand on what God said rather than what you're enticing me to do. But when she gave in to her desire, the seductress, the result was, as James says, sin, and then sin, like God said, leads to death. And you might be wondering, well, if Eve couldn't stand firm, how am I supposed to do it? Right? I mean, this is hard, this is impossible. Well, let me give you a few tips or keys as to how we can stand firm in the face of temptation. The first one, letter A on point three, is we need to search the scripture. We got to search the scripture. That's got to be the first one. Remember Jesus's temptation in Matthew 4, 1 through 11? When Jesus was tempted three times by the devil, remember what Jesus responded with? What did he say? He said, it is written. It is written. The scripture says Jesus knew the Bible. He believed the Bible and he stood on the Bible. And he said, no, I'm not going to go with your temptation because this is what the scripture says. It is written. Can you imagine if Eve had done that, what the results would have been? And, you know, we have the opportunity to ask ourselves the same question. In the face of the things that are enticing and luring you, what if you say no? God says no. God says this, and I will say it is written. And I'm going to stand firm with that rather than yielding. my desires. That will help us to stand firm. We got to know, believe, and trust the scriptures. We got to search the scriptures. Second one, and this is important, we've got to tell God, we have to tell God that we are willing to do his will. Tell God that you are willing to do his will. We know that Jesus didn't just face that one temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus faced other temptations. We know that one of his greatest temptations was in the garden before he went to the cross. And we see this recorded in Luke 22, verses 40 through 42. Uh, Luke 22, verses 40 through 42, it says when he came to that place, to the garden, we know he had his three best friends with him, Peter, James, and John. So when he came to that place, he said to them his three best friends, pray that you may not enter into temptation, our same Greek word, perosmos. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' firm declaration was, you know what? Not my will, but yours be done. We've got to be willing to say the same thing to God, to honestly, uh, not just saying it before man, but really honestly in our heart, getting to the place where we say, God, I trust that your will is better than my will. And so I ask, not my will, but yours be done, because I really believe that your will is better than my will. If we're going to stand, we've got to do the same thing. And the third one, the third one is we need to ask the Holy Spirit for help. We have got to ask God's Holy Spirit for help. Uh, Jesus taught us that the Holy Spirit is our helper. He's here with us to help us in john 14 16 and 17 jesus said i will ask the father and he will give you another helper besides me to be with you forever even the spirit of truth the holy spirit whom the world can't receive the world doesn't have the holy spirit those who are not in christ don't have the holy spirit but jesus says uh, because it neither sees him or knows him nor knows him but you know him For he dwells with you and he will be in you. As Christians, as people who have put their trust in Christ and turned from their sins, we are indwelt by the third person of the triune God. He is here with us as our helper to help us stand firm in the face of temptation. And that's why Galatians 5.16 says, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the spirit, uh, yield to the spirit, trust the spirit, lean into the spirit, be close to the spirit, follow the promptings of the spirit, uh, do what the spirit wants you to do and the promises you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we stay close to the spirit of God, if we lean into him, if we ask him for help, we will not bend in the face of temptation and we got to ask God for help. Even Jesus taught this in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew six thirteen, where he said, pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, help us to stand fast in the tests, in the trials, in temptation. Help us not to yield to evil. There's a, a great book that I really like. Uh, it's called The Man Christ Jesus by Bruce Ware. We sell it at Compass Books, but I like it because it focuses on the humanity of Christ. We know the Bible teaches us that Jesus was fully God, 100% God, never was not 100% God, but at the same time, he was 100% human, and sometimes we don't explore what that meant for Jesus or think through what that meant for Jesus, but this book really helps us to get there. Um, But Jesus was fully 100% human, and as a 100% human, he also relied on the Holy Spirit for victory over sin. Uh, There's a really interesting passage in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8, that talks about Jesus. It says, in the days of his flesh, Uh, fully human. He was fully God, yet fully human. It says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And then it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned to rely on the Holy Spirit the same way that we're called to rely on the Holy Spirit. And then Hebrews 4.14, same book, right before that, showing us that as fully God, Jesus fully resisted all the sin that was tempting him. It says in verse 4.14, we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is there for us. He relied upon the Holy Spirit for strength to obey, and he's calling us to do the same thing. God's Holy Spirit wants us to succeed, and we must depend upon him. He wants us to stand firm. He's holy. He's pure. He takes no pleasure in sin. He wants us to trust in him. The fourth one. The fourth one is you need to note that your struggle could be worse. Note that your struggle could be worse. And you know, that's what the New Testament actually tells us to do. It says to note that our struggle could be worse. We see this in Hebrews 12 verses 3 and 4. Hebrews 12 verses 3 and 4 says, Consider him. So when you're considering somebody, you're noting something, take note of something. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. And then the author says, in your struggle against sin, so in your uh, attempts to endure temptation, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. Jesus resisted to the point where the scripture says that he began to sweat tears of blood. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you you haven't resisted to that degree. You you need to remember that. You need to note that. It could be a lot worse. Uh, It's helping us not to overestimate what we're going through. Because when we overestimate what we're going through, we start making excuses for ourselves when it comes to our failure to stand firm in the face of temptation, we see the same truth in 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure this, that you will be able to stand firm in this without sin. So that text begins by telling us your temptation, it's not uncommon. It's common to man. And you may think uh, what I'm going through is so uncommon. Uh, Nobody's gone through this or nobody knows what this is like. And the scripture says, no, that's not true. Uh, It could be, in fact, a lot worse. When we start thinking that our temptation, our circumstance, what we're going through is so uncommon, it again uh, provides that excuse for us to say, that's why I had to sin. That's why I couldn't stand firm. What I'm enduring is just so uncommon. We've got to remember that nobody, not even Satan himself, can make us sin. We sin because we want to sin. We sin because we desire to sin and what we're going through, what we're facing, what we're enduring is nothing new. It's common to man and we've got to keep that perspective. And the fifth one here is we've got to depend on godly friends. We've got to depend on godly friends. Uh, I love at uh, the end of his life, near the end of his life, right before he went to the garden, actually, in Luke twenty two twenty eight, 28. Uh, Luke twenty two twenty eight, 28. Uh, Jesus said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You are those, you, my godly friends, are those who have stayed with me in my same Greek word, parasmos you've stayed with me and we know that Jesus's friends let him down we know that they uh, weren't perfect friends but he depended on godly friends they were there with him for support and we've got to do the same thing we got to depend on godly friends for support for accountability for courage for strength to spur us on to stand firm in the face of temptation and if you look at these uh, five keys as to how we can more effectively stand firm in the face of temptation, you look at the letters that they start with, you'll see if you go through, it should be S-T-A-N-D. Stand, helping us to stand, that's what we wanna do. We wanna stand firm in the face of temptation. But let me uh, warn you, if you're doing this and you're not a Christian, you're just trying to better yourself from the outside in, you're trying just to resist temptation and maybe have a better life, your efforts will never stand before God. Because God is perfect, and he demands perfection. And so all of us, we've got to begin by getting our life right with God through Christ. And James is writing to people that he believes are believers. He's writing to people that he believes are Christians, and he's telling them, because you're Christians, you should live in a way consistent with your Christian identity. And that's what God wants you to do. You don't do this to become a Christian. You do this because you are a Christian. And when we don't, when we fail, and when we experience the consequences of our sin, James is teaching us that, We really have no one to blame but ourselves, which is why the Puritan John Owen uh, cautioned us in a very terse way, saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let's pray. God, help us to stop blaming, to stop blaming others, to stop blaming our circumstances, to stop even blaming you for our sin. God, help us to take full responsibility for the times that we've yielded to sinful temptation. And God, help us to learn to turn from temptation and to really anchor ourselves in you. May we know the scripture, study the scripture, believe the scripture. May we truly let you know from the bottom of our hearts that we are willing to do your will. If there's anyone here right now who knows in her heart that she is afraid to do your will, God, please infuse her with courage and strength and get her to the place where she can truly see that your will is better than her will, Lord. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us, help us to stand firm as we know that in and of ourselves, by ourselves, we don't have the capacity to do this. God, I pray that we would remember that our experiences are not so unique or not so outrageous that they give us an excuse for sin. And God, help us to develop relationships here that we might depend on one another, for courage and strength and support and really to be able to stand firm and to live this life with authentic faith as James calls us to, but ultimately as you call us to. We thank you so much for Jesus and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.